One day, you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voice behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. This poem may be known to many of you. It's quite famous. It's called The Journey by Mary Oliver. And I wanted to start with it because for one, it's one of my all-time favorite poems. One of those poems that stands out as a goal of the kind of life that I want to live. But also because as we begin to wrap up season one, I wanted to share this poem that I feel embodies so much of what I believe unknowing invites us into. Learning how to let go of all the other voices striding into the wild in the midst of a storm to discover the true sound of our own voice. That kind of courage doesn't just show up in a package with a bow. It's earned, hard-earned, over lots and lots of difficult experiences and choices. Over time, we learn that we can trust ourselves to know when to walk away from the shoulds, even when the shoulds are really glamorous, from the expectations of others, even from what is perceived as success and to trust ourselves as we stride deeper into the fullness of our own becoming. I'm totally biased, but my guest today embodies this kind of courage in spades. Joy Williams is a singer-songwriter. She has received four Grammy Awards, was half of the Civil Wars duo, released four solo albums and four EPs since she first released her self-titled debut in 2001. If you don't own her most recent album, Front Porch, just seriously stop the podcast, go buy the album, listen to her music, and then come back and listen to this conversation. As a vocalist, she's an undeniable talent. She is famous for her voice. But having the privilege of being Joy's friend and watch her stride into the wild in the midst of a storm like the Mary Oliver poem and discover the sound of her true voice who she really is, watching her tune out all the other voices and learning how to trust her own has been the privilege of a lifetime and has taught me so much. And that's the conversation I wanted to have with her today. How do you find that kind of courage? How do you leave the voices behind, even when everyone is telling you you're crazy to do so? And learning how to trust yourself instead. I'm so excited to be able to share this conversation with you with one of my oldest and dearest friends, Joy Williams. 
So, Joy, I like to begin these interviews by talking about the maps that we're given in our childhood. And everybody receives some version of a map to make sense of our reality. And that has a tendency of kind of setting us off in a particular direction in this, you know, adventure of becoming. And so, to begin, can you share with us what your childhood map looked like? Yeah, there were lots of dots on that map. I moved around a lot as a kid. Um, anybody who uh, was either like a missionary kid or a pastor's kid or like a, a kid in the military can, can understand what that feeling is like where you you bounce about from place to place. And um, you kind of become a sort of third culture kid. You're, you're never from one place and the the roots that are there, they kind of, you get used to being transplanted. But the framework within all of that transplanting, whether it was like born in Michigan and then lived on the East Coast and then back to Michigan and then out to Santa Cruz, where I felt like I found my people, <laughs> was um, the the through thread of that was that um, I was raised in a family that was once a very corporate, high achieving family in in that my what my dad's job was and then he kind of got really disillusioned by what he was doing it was sort of like why am I doing this and then you know he sort of left everything that he'd been building in a corporate way and went back to uh, faith-based retreat centers and used his business acumen to help these various retreat centers that were generally like kind of falling apart by way of like it's okay god will take care of it and like a lot of good intentions but maybe not great business plans so my dad came in and sort of rehabbed places of rest and comfort for people to learn and to grow and families to gather without distraction and you know my memories of my map include a lot of time in nature and I remember that being my most grounding place, that no matter where I was, if it was a backyard or a new house that had a field in the back that was probably laced with ticks, but there were, it was also laced with bluebirds and nests. And, you know, I remember making forts and that was part of my map was no matter where I was, I would find the wild place around me. And um, so within this, more conservative framework of my life was also the wilderness. And the two, I think, have been dancing around each other for a very long time. And um, to speak to of sort of the faith background that I had, I felt that growing up, that structure was a lot about how you treated people. I didn't realize till later that there was more of a theological reasoning behind that. Like I just grew up with people sharing food together and like getting clothes out of a missionary barrel. And like, it was like, if we have it, we share it, you know, and we do life together and it's messy. It's messy, messy. And it's real and we help each other. That's what we're here to do. That was kind of the foundation uh, or the map by which my formation began. It's so powerful to listen to you describe that 
beautiful harmonic tension between <laughs> kind of a theological conservative perspective, but then you had the wild and you had yeah. this experience in nature that was perhaps more expansive, um, more comfortable with mystery, more comfortable with not knowing. And so it's so deeply resonant to listen to you describe it in that way, because I think many of us have maybe grown up, those of us who maybe have grown up in a more conservative theological or religious childhood, um, often have these, what I'd like to describe as trap doors. Yeah. It's like, yes, you're given this set of like parameters, but then maybe it's like literature, you know, my own childhood and how my parents really provided a lot of artistic avenues through literature and the arts that created trap doors for me to drop into a more expansive and inclusive place. And I can definitely feel that in how you describe nature. Yeah, it's where words, where words fall short mm. and everything else feels bigger. Mm. And so you feel smaller and safer. Isn't that a paradox? Smaller mm -hmm. and safer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also you feel the bigness too. That's that's the that's what you're talking about. That it's not it's not dissident. It's almost like the dissident harmonic that you're talking about. Mm. You and I talk so many hours about these kinds of things. By the way, I love that it's finally being recorded. <laughs> like if only people knew how many hours over wine and like weekends away and weekends we wish we could get away, but we're in our own homes, like talking about these things over you know FaceTime or whatever. It's so. I'm just loving that we're sitting here doing yeah. this. Usually, at least on my end, there's there's a ton more swearing happening when oh, I'm talking about Oh, a thousand percent. Uh, You're not the only one that speaks fluent French, Reed. We know this. <laughs> <laughs> Me speaking the French, too. Okay. Speaking of speaking uh, the French. Um, speaking of speaking. The, the way you described a minute ago that smallness and bigness kind of coinciding inside of us at once and that how sometimes in experiencing our smallness we also experience our desire to contribute to participate mm -hmm. it's as if you know experiencing that kind of greater harmonic whole pulls out that singular note in each of us to be like oh okay i want to play too i want to create <laughs> too so i want to ask you at what point that creative urge began in you to explore a participatory contribution through music. Hmm. Um, I'm going to take it back to the forest. I was very young. My mom taught me how to harmonize when I was around the age of four, and and we would we didn't have a lot of money growing up, so that was our way of play. That was our form of entertainment. So I grew up singing in the woods. And I remember thinking, it just felt so free. No one was listening. And I loved that because I grew up in a family where everybody was watching. You're sort of like the first family of that community, like being an executive director that he was for so many different camps. I've always felt like there were eyes and ears. And so to go out into the forest felt like eyes and ears of only positive regard found in the trees and the sky. And it didn't matter what it was that I was singing. It didn't matter if it was on pitch. It didn't matter. It was just pure expression. And so I remember taking that sense of freedom with me back home, you know, into the house. And then my mom realizing that I 
I did have a sense of pitch and that I did have an uncanny sense of harmony. And so I began singing with my family and my dad was legally deaf, uh, but had hearing aids and we would travel. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just imagining like my Olin Mills outfits. Do you remember the Olin Mills <laughs> photography where it's like the bib like the, the bib, bib collar with the scrunchie <laughs> Which, top. You and do know it, the kids are wearing that right now, right? Like this we, is actually, you sounded eighty five when you said that. By the way, you the know kids, the kids are wearing the young ones. The uh, yes. the, the the childrens of of this era are now bringing <laughs> that fashion back, and I yeah. I am not a fan. <laughs> I'm you know I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy it from afar. Let's just say it that way. But um, we went on the road and, and it was, we, it wasn't like a grand tour. It was, we were raising support to live. And so it was interesting that very quickly my tiny, quiet forest, wild love of music became an avenue by which I was essentially able to help support my family um, there was a lot about that that was really sweet, like the videos of singing like Up in the Attic by Amy Grant, like they're very sweet. And at the same time, I have a moment where I want to pick up that little girl Ooh. who's not much bigger than my daughter now and say, hey, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to. But I loved it. I loved harmonizing with my family. And I I wasn't really aware that people were watching. Mm-hmm. Um but over time, I became very aware that people were watching. And I became aware that singing made people smile. And what little kid doesn't like to help other people feel that way? Right. So I began uh, within a very supportive, loving framework of a family. In a way, it was sort of a bittersweet beginning to finding that passion of music because it got funneled really quickly. Um, through, for me, what has been a gauntlet of a lifetime of working through that um, my worth and value is not based on my performance. It's astonishing to me that we've known each other this long, and I'm sure we've mentioned this in conversation before, but I don't know that I ever fully recognized until this moment that we both had that deeply formative experience of being thrust onto the stage as a little girl for the sake of raising support for your family. Yeah. (laughs) And how much that experience, while yes, it's sweet and yes, it's like, oh, you know, and everybody loved it because look at the Mm -hmm. little girl and she's singing and it's so precious. But how that then becomes coded within us, the pressure of wanting to, like you said, bring joy to people, but also providing for the family and how that unknowingly forced us into an extroverted experience of art. Yeah. Um, well, while I'm very much an introvert. And while you are we too. ourselves are both <laughs> introverts. <laughs> Which is why I think we found each other. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But this element of performance is fascinating because it did really set you off on this trajectory of uh, maybe without realizing this hidden agreement of, well, I guess this is what I need to do and how I need to do it because it's making everyone else happy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to I wanna talk a little bit more about how your career really began because it did start at an incredibly early age. Yeah, walk us through this first movement of your musical career and what it was like for you. Yeah, I mean, so we moved from the woods of Michigan to New Jersey. That's where that we started having to sort of raise 
funds together so all four of us are singing. Then we move back four years later to another conference center in Michigan. And at this point, I'm really like enjoying the fact that I get to get up there. I feel really special. <laughs> and people seem to really like it when I get up there and sing with my mom and my sister. My dad had since backed out. I think that was to his credit for understanding that it's really hard to have good pitch when you're singing with hearing aids. So thank you, dad. And, um, and so we took that trio and we didn't have to sing as much in that era. But I remember putting tapes in my cassette player my Walkman oh my gosh I sound so old and um and like going out into you know the backyard and playing basketball and listening to music and singing we were only there two years we moved to Santa Cruz to a large uh, retreat center just south of San Francisco in the Santa Cruz mountains and there was where um the school systems were not great and the only one that I think my family felt excited about was a school that was connected to a large church. So we started going there and then I started going to school there. And then very quickly, my uh, red headed piano teaching vocal choir goddess, Miss um, Connie Fortunato, like quickly figured out that even though I was very shy, um, that I had, I guess, something unique at the time. And so she, I started getting like singled out for like the solo parts for the school choir performances that also happened to be like, you did it on the Tuesday for the families and then you did it at church on Sunday for the three services that were like a thousand plus people each. And so I sang and I did that for years and um, I started thinking, maybe I could do theater. Like, this could be really fun. Like, I could maybe I could do this for a living. And I was singing, like, I, I am like, I really hope there's, like, no bootleg tapes anywhere of me singing, like, Monica songs, but, like, with rewritten, like, lyrics that the music pastor no. edited no. like I was I was singing like one sweet day by Mariah Carey with like altered lyrics and yes. like you know it you was were singing it, them it was, Jesus that's right. yes of yeah. course <laughs> Jesus boyfriend songs that's what we call them so um so I was doing that and and when I was 14 I was I had just started my freshman year of high school and uh somebody in the audience contacted someone that they knew in Nashville and they came out, and then the talk of record contracts came up. And it was the era of Leanne Rhymes, and they were like, oh, cool, she just started ovulating, like, we could sign her too. And so I, it, was, it was so much about the youth culture of that era, and, um, and it was so much about, like, can you sing it versus, like, did you write it? That was very much that pop princess era. And um, I was just so thrilled to be even be considered in that. And to my parents' credit, I had a, a deal offered to me. It was a faith-based label. I had a deal offered to me. And my parents sat me down at the Oak dinner table that we were at and said, let's talk about pros and cons. And I said, okay. And we walked through what the pros would be. And the, the con that my dad wrote down is, you'll be an adult from this moment forward. And he said, do you really want to do that? 
And I said, no, not really. I think I would like to play volleyball and keep surfing. And I think I would like to go to prom. And so I put that to the side, but it had pricked my curiosity. And my family still at the time didn't have resources for me to have a paid way to college. And so I thought, well, if I work really hard in school and if I keep singing, like maybe, maybe something will open up for me. So when I was 17, still singing at church, doing the whole deal, and the same record label that asked me when I was 14 came back around. And I felt in my 17-year-old wisdom, or what I thought was, I thought, well, this is a sign, and I'm I'm supposed to do this. And I do think that I was, I mean, I'm here today, so obviously, like, that's a big part of my dot on the map. Um, I had to legally divorce myself from my parents in order to sign my record contract. And that was the moment when I realized like, oh, wow, I really did. I really did just jump in to a career a year after I got my driver's license. And I was stoked because I didn't have to go into debt for college, which I would not have been able to have afforded, even with the scholarships I was getting. And I was off to the races and I did... I made my first solo record um, on a Christian record label called Reunion Records and made it by flying every weekend. I would go to school Monday through Friday. I would fly Friday and go to Nashville and record songs that had been written for me. And then I'd fly home, take a red eye on Sunday and get back in time to get up and go to school Monday through Friday. And I thought that that was awesome. But looking back, I realized um, just what a total stress that is on a tiny person like that. And, um, and it was all in there, right? Like the youthful hope and the naivety and the work ethic and that I'm helping people. And I toured 250 days that first year with a manager who basically said, you can't say no. Wow. Wow. And this, this brings me to a, what I feel is going to become a theme of this conversation, which is the difference between the performative versions of the music mm-hmm. industry versus mm-hmm. the artistic, authentic experience of creation um, out of your own volition, with your own voice, in your own words. And was that an element of what you were unhappy with or felt discontent in within that era of, you know, pop princess Christian music? Like, was it the fact that you were singing other people's words, singing expressions that maybe weren't really authentic to your experience anymore? What was the dissonance of that experience that led you to kind of leap into or leap out of that map into a new Mm -hmm. um, chapter of your creativity? For me, I learned really quickly that it was so much more connective. I would, I opened for so many people at that first year. It was so much more connective to see songs that people had written themselves with the audience. Mm-hmm. I'd never made the distinction before <laughs> until I witnessed it time and time again. And, and I thought, well, I, I did really well in English and I've always really listened to lyrics and like I've written terrible poetry for a very long time. Like maybe I could do this too. <laughs> And so, and so, some sure. really kind, really kind and patient uh, songwriters in town that were more established met with me, and I started learning the craft. 
And as I started learning the craft, as I have always loved words so much, um, at times to a fault, like for forgetting my own body, but like crafting the words themselves, I started realizing as one year led to two years, led to three years, led to more albums, um, I started feeling very claustrophobic with the culture. And I, living in California for so many years prior to moving to Nashville, which is what I did right out the week after I graduated high school, I moved to Nashville with 250 bucks in my pocket and one suitcase, and I just hopped on a bus of a tour that was already planned. I was I was um, not well-versed in uh, the culture. I was more versed in a, like a deeply rooted faith structure. And then to have to sort of market the faith of that, you can hear the parallels of like me as a little kid and then me growing up of being, and me as a slightly more autonomous human being at 18, being like, huh, and then getting to 20 and going, hmm, like my virginity is a marketing piece. I mean. To my, to my record label. And if I gain weight, that is also a, a topic of conversation at my record label. And this happens a lot. This is not, it's happening less and less, thank God. But like, it's still there. And so I began really struggling with what I felt over time was this very myopic view of God and I struggled with the language that I was only permitted to write within which felt like it felt like a it felt like a white picket fence like of two by twos like in a very small plot of land like in a field of wildflowers and I just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact of thinking, do I really want to make six digits staying in this two by two plot of land? Like there are, there is so much beauty abounding that flows over beyond that I do believe God is in the midst of. I can't keep doing this. If I do, I'm going to have to become a duplicitous person. And so I chose to walk away. I chose to walk away at the height of my career at that point in time, which people said I was crazy to do, and I was, but I also was crazy enough to believe in the wildflowers growing outside the picket fence. Mm, mm. What a powerful image, and I think so many listeners can relate to the experience of recognizing um in, in the words of Bayo Akomolafe, who's an author I'm a big fan of and a guest on the show, where he says, the voice of the wild beyond these fences that calls to us. And that in your experience and in my experience as well, there's a, a deep sense of whatever the divine is has to be wilder than my imagination, wilder than this little what did you say, two by two or was it four by four? Yeah, two by two. Two by two, tiny little pot of land. And the courage that it takes to break out of that initial container, it does kind of feel like a rupture. And the beginning of us maybe tearing the map, the initial map, or adding another page. Um, either way, it's a rupture that takes a tremendous amount of bravery to say, okay, I am going to choose to trust this deeper instinct and the call of that wild 
over the security of this fence, even if it means me walking away from a quote unquote really successful career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I experienced it. I'm glad that it brought me to a place of confronting my own white picket fences. Mm-hmm. And it was it was very painful leaving and the critique that I experienced leaving that and starting something new uh, was a, a version of a kind of character assassination from people who didn't know me that actually prepared me for what happened later on in my career. And so I don't think it was necessarily another page. I just think the map dots started looking a little rougher and more worn in Mm. and they started the topography really started becoming three-dimensional beautiful so this is right around the time that you and I actually met you were (laughs) you were post the Krish realm and you (laughs) you you were a writing machine you were you were writing I mean every single day multiple writes a day Um, and this is also just prior to the civil war so Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you can share with us how it felt to lock into a new expression when the civil wars began. What was that moment of recognition of, I think this is something, let's give this a shot. (laughs) Yeah, it was um, curiosity, freedom, and fire. Those three things. It was, I wonder what would happen if, I wonder what would happen if I wrote in a way where I didn't worry so much about what people thought. I wonder what would happen if I blend my voice with a man's and we both play the the role of archetype. What would happen if we dared to not really give two you-know-whats about... They, oh, cool, can we say that? Yeah. Um, yeah, what would happen if we didn't give two shits about what Music Row was doing... And what if we danced around that fire of the freedom to write about longing and desire and loss and love and grief and monogamy and ache? What would happen if we did that? And it was, it was amazing to step into that. It was like stepping into a more loving kind of fullness to my femininity, which I'd not felt I was allowed to um, prior to that. And partly I hadn't given myself the freedom to do that, but I finally did. And that era of writing still to this day will always be one of, I've had several now, which I'm grateful to say, but it'll always be one of my favorites. That first season of writing what became the first album for the Civil Wars, because John Paul and I were just, he was just sitting out back of my tiny house of me and my husband at the time. He was just sitting out back smoking a cigarette, playing a really warped guitar. We would just spend the afternoon dreaming up scenarios and talking about documentaries we'd watched, like Grey Gardens, which became a song called Pressing Flowers, and talking about, you know, life and the messiness of it. It wasn't what I was used to, which was how do we put a bow on this of 
um, here's what hope and redemption smells, sounds, and tastes like. Instead, it was like, maybe there's redemption in the ache. Maybe there's redemption in acknowledging the pain. Maybe there's a real goodness to saying, this is really hard. And I loved the freedom of that. I've never lost that since I found it and stepped into it. It was um, such an incredible time to witness as a friend because this whole new wildfire was released inside of you in how you sang, how you performed, how you embodied your carriage. It was this this discovery of your own connection to the wild and that the wildness became familiar, friendly. It was no longer something to fence out, but it was actually something to relate to as part of our very, very embodied human experience. And yeah, you know, God is there too. <laughs> oh, you know, I mean, you would think, you would think, and I've said this before. Believe it or not, yeah, yeah. It's curious to me that as somebody who hails from a Christian uh, religious upbringing, as you do, uh, it's it's curious to me that a religion based on incarnation still hasn't gotten the memo yet <laughs> about yet, this material that word. existence. One of my favorite words in all of the of the dictionary is yet and yet i have hope for yet yes for myself and all of us it's so true so as often is the case joy uh there is what people see on stage and Mm -hmm. on the glossy covers and you know (laughs) and and the the grammy awards and you know the things that are rolling in success was happening and then there's the grit the anguish the tears the agony of what is actually uh, happening behind the scenes. So, yeah, you, you know, there. there you are, four Grammys. And I know these years had a tremendous amount of turmoil. And I want to ask about what you learned during that season of literal upheaval when, while quote unquote making it, you know, you're at the top of your game, so to speak. And we, te- we have a tendency of glorifying that. It's like we look at that yeah. achievement, but it comes at a very real price. So yes. what, what did you learn during that time of success about what you were and were no longer willing to submit to as an artist, as a woman, as a human being, as a creator? What did that season teach you? Hmm. I mean, I remember calling you from a, a shitty van in the middle of nowhere. You know, I was driving... John Paul was asleep. Nate was my husband at the time who was managing us was asleep in the back. And I have a really vivid memory of you and I having a difficult conversation where you were like, I'm worried about you. And it makes me emotional thinking about it because I was so compelled by the momentum of what was happening that I chose to neglect myself and my needs and my safety, emotional or otherwise. And it is so expensive. It is so expensive being willing to lay everything down in order to finally accomplish what it is that you thought that you wanted to experience. And it's like, I've never done hard drugs. Sometimes it sounds fun, um, but I've got kids now and I'm like, eh. Um, but it's like, I think I thought that what hitting some of those benchmarks were 
in my career would be like this cocaine high that you'd never come down off of is really just a Diet Coke buzz. And um, my marriage suffered for that. My physical body, the safety of my physical body suffered for that. Um, and what happened, and you know this, but you know what happened is so much less salacious than people think. Um, it's actually really difficult to find words to talk about it because it was so painful and traumatic. It was not what people thought that it was. I had the lowest period of my life when we were winning all those Grammys. So you can be in the midst of the highest high, but if there is unhealth leading the way, then it's a cancer that's going to eat you alive. And so what I learned is that there is no amount of Grammys in the world that is worth putting your physical person in danger that I am worth more than the objectification of being readily available for anybody that wants to be entertained, that I am valuable even in the midst of disappointing people, and that I am valuable even in the midst of when I disappoint myself, and that forgiveness is the most punk rock thing that you can do. That's what I learned in that era. It is this moment where I've had to find forgiveness so that I don't constantly want to chase down telling people what really happened. I really struggle to know how to live in the wild while also keeping some pretty important parts that happen in a very public way to myself. So what, what do you do when you've been so objectified yeah, it's bringing to mind that relationship between public and private that I yeah. think many artists experience, which is there is a truly malicious and malignant approach to artistry in the industries that make it as if you, the artist, are public domain, you belong to the public, that your life is not your own. and. Right. Or that you owe everybody. Yes, you owe an everybody. explanation mm -hmm. for what you ate this morning or what you think about politically or what you do or don't align with or X, Y, and Z. It's up for everyone's public opinion on that. And it's like, mm, I don't agree. But so it's, it's so interesting, Brie, because we're talking about freedom and fire and wild. So there's this part. And it's like, and the Civil War is like, you know, even if you're just listening, like I'm expanding my arms, like for the freedom that I found in that, um, it gave me a, a reminder of my backbone that I don't have to apologize for being female. And yet <laughs> when, when the duo ceased to continue, it was that very femininity that got attacked and where assumptions were drawn uh, on, by, on both sides. Yeah, you and know? that you then had to rewire within yourself, what is my voice now apart from this duo, and how do I 
how do I live into the fullness of the sovereignty of my voice as a woman and not abandon yourself to the public domain's opinions? You know, and I saw this quote and I have to read it back to you because it it was so powerful to me the way that you said this. It's a quote from Riff Magazine, an interview you did uh, a while ago where you said, I think there's a lot of ways to quietly riot. I've been told many times being a woman in the industry or as a woman in general in different seasons of my life that my voice didn't count. And I'll pause right there and just say any woman who's grown up in a Christian background can relate to that. And here you continue, you say, but something as small or seemingly insignificant as a canary in a coal mine is really the truth teller. There's a great power in that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's something I find deep, deep power in uh, outlasting the criticism. <laughs> well, yes, and the power for me in witnessing the many, many iterations of you discovering an even greater version of you, an even greater version, an even more amazing, expansive, creative expression and personal expression. And, you know, seeing you do that and pivot and then begin releasing your own work post the Civil Wars was one of those moments. But you're also, and I'm not just saying this because you're my friend, I'm just going to say this, <laughs> you are one of the most incredible vocalists I've ever heard. And oh, thank you. so in this theme about what it takes to find and use your voice, and I don't just mean that literally, you've done such incredible heavy lifting and arriving at that clarity of what is your voice, your sovereignty, your fiat declaration of becoming, and what is yours to offer the world and what's not, what doesn't belong out there, you know, that that boundary that you discovered was a critical one. I do find that there's an interesting overlap in the fact that, as any singer knows, you have to sing with your whole body. Yeah. So <laughs> I think <laughs> I can't not. <laughs> that's how it works. So similarly, and I don't know that everybody knows that, but similarly, we can't actually find the power of our own voice and participation in, in contributing to society or contributing to our deepest becoming without being embodied. So I want to ask you about the role of embodiment for you and how that has or is befriending, how, how that act of befriending your body is helping you continue to discover your own agency and power. Yeah. You ask such shallow questions, Bree. <laughs> <laughs> Said no one ever. Um, I, I I was struck by you know so the Civil Wars really allowed me to 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 first tap into that. Like what a gift! I'll forever be grateful for stepping into that and feeling this. The colors just went jewel tone when we did that. It was like I'd been kind of swimming in pastels. It was like whoosh, like oh yes please. Um, and then I, I think getting pregnant with, um, with Miles, you know, Nate's and my son. And it was, it was a fascinating thing to be wearing four-inch heels and sick as a dog, pregnant. And do, feeling, share, do share the fact that you literally had to run off stage and vomit yeah, and vomit. Can come I back and continue singing during performances. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just us two up there. There is no band to be like, hey, take a take a solo, if you will. It was like, and we're back. Um, so, yeah, I mean, being pregnant and then actually feeling another soul swishing around in there. 
And then it affecting my voice. It actually, having a boy, the testosterone, the increases in your body. Um, and so my actual vocal range shifted. And then I noticed, you know, post-birth, I kept that range, the lower range. I got to keep. And my high range came back to. And so this embodiment, it was like the pouring out of creating another human being left me with physical marks, of course, like any woman would experience, but I moved differently because of that. And I sing differently because of having my son. And that happened too with my daughter, Poppy. And it was like each sort of offering up, you know, whether it's like the solo album of Venus where going, you know, 16 years into a marriage and then that ending really abruptly and, and finding my new way as a, as a single mother and like finding all, these are all really, really, um, high octane invitations to hold myself and ask to be held by that, which is greater than me and to fall into being held in a way where I will not be let go of, which I have not experienced yet, but to believe in, that's not true. I have felt held, but do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like surrendering to the deeper part of me, surrendering to the vastness of who I believe I've been made to be and realizing that it's, I will go back to the kid in the forest, go back to feeling much smaller, which also makes me end up feeling much more expansive. So this embodiment, these all these artistic explorations of like, you know, um, moody TV film music or like going full on like archetypal in the civil wars and, and then kind of going like as celestial as I possibly could on Venus, like out from the Southern you know, swamps did I go into like outer space and then back again to a front porch. And it's like, I want to not be afraid to stretch, to take up space, to say, I'm here and I'm learning this now. And, and to walk in a kind of forgiveness like for the bumps not that that's something to apologize for but to know that like that deep forgiveness can run in a way in me that makes me so much more brave brave enough to keep going and brave enough to slow down brave enough to say no not today and brave enough to say yeah no it's on today (laughs) so I'm still learning what embodiment means. Miles Davis has a quote that I've loved that has stayed with me. Of Miles said, um, sometimes it takes a long time to finally sound like yourself. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. And that, I'm like, yeah. I'm getting closer to 40 now. And I've lived a little, you know. And I don't know a lot. I do know some things. And I just want everything I experience hopefully to make me kinder and softer and like more like a velvet mountain. And um, that's, that's like what I'm the most interested in is like inhabiting that space. Cause there's deep love I think in that. 
deep, a deep willingness to hold others in that as well. Like to accept, to love, to hold space and, and to, to forgive and to be brave, brave enough to be vulnerable and messy and all the things. I mean, the way you're describing it, joy to me just sounds profoundly feminine it's a, a feminine approach to strength, right? To say mm. that what I desire is a vulnerable strength. What I desire to embody is a soft solidity. Yeah. Strong back, soft front, as Brene Brown says. <laughs> yeah, a flexible rootedness. And one of the things that I hear in your voice that has been emerging through these unbelievably painful ruptures that have also been birth canals into your yeah. truer becoming is trust. I hear a new level of trust in yourself um, as you explore more of that wild terrain. I think back on how you started this conversation that there's a lot of performativity that is handed down that we internalize as what we should do. And I guess I should be doing these things because it makes these people happy. I guess I should be continuing in this situation that's not really healthy for me because it's winning Grammys. I guess I should not have boundaries. I guess I, you know, it's like this sense of like the should life sometimes takes over and we're performing. And there's a pivot that happens when we discover that there is this powerful sovereignty of our own voice that we can trust because that voice is in harmony with the greater collective wild or whatever you call the divine, uh, the universe, in which, as you said so beautifully, you can be small and powerful at the same time. You can be tiny and still be held. And it's not that that wasn't there when I first met you. I think it's just gotten stronger, that sense of trust in yourself. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we're just learning how to, how to be more fluent in the realm of suffering and acceptance and new definitions of beauty, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously not just talking outwardly. Some of it outwardly. But, you know, I mean, yeah. I think you and I have both been... You and I don't swim in the kiddie pool. Like you and I are just like, who's who's up for spelunking today? And it's like, <laughs> Joy's hand is up and Bree's hand is always up. You know, it's like, um, like to say Velvet Mountain to someone, they'd be like, the hell does that even mean? And you're like, yes, that's what it is. You know, we have a kinship in this way mm-hmm. of, but I think we both have had to trust the unfolding of something or the unraveling of something. Your life has unraveled in ways that you could not have ever imagined. My life has unraveled in ways I could not have ever imagined or even conjured up. Like, if you'd read me what the map dots were going to be, I'd be like, I'm just going to go over here, I think. Um, But I think trust... I think trust is something that is tested until, until the assurance is there. And even when it's not, it's sort of like, um, it's like being willing to drown, knowing that somewhere in there, there's some gills that are going to start growing. So we don't intentionally want to put ourselves in there because no one wants to do that. But I think time and time again, I've learned, wow, just when I thought I couldn't handle this or that this was going to be my absolute undoing you wake up the next day and you you do it again but differently like that's the growing gills part of i do believe i do believe in a god that is kind 
I do. I think she's wonderfully kind. I think he's wonderfully kind. I think they're wonderfully kind. You know, what pronoun? I'm not really that concerned about the pronoun. I'm concerned about, I'm more concerned about how do I live in a way that that speaks of that deep love so that so that I can just be a wild and wonderful and loving presence, you know, if I can make something out of that space, if I can love someone out of that space, if I can raise my children out of that space, you know, living into the questions. Like, I just love the, you know, the unknowing. It's one of the things I've always loved about Ibri is that you were never afraid to say, I don't know. I don't know. And that you've given me a lot of bravery in these conversations over the years too, to just say, I don't know. I don't know yet. And to live into the quandary is I think where the deepest truths can come out. It is that line and it's on the tagline at the end of the show where I talk about how Rilke says, live the questions, try to live the questions. And I know I'm trying and I see you trying and I, I can't let this moment go by without just taking a quick beat as one of your closest friends. It's very difficult to be completely <laughs> friend. Pro- just kidding. professional. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> this is the moment. It was too easy. This is the moment when it comes out, Joy. I really just I have to say, I just, I, I'm going to break up with you here and now on the show. Oh, God. Um, but no, in all seriousness, uh, <laughs> you know, to witness you in the trajectory of your courageousness. And we're both single moms in industries that celebrate that disembodiment and disconnection to encourage human beings to keep self-abandoning so that they can be manipulated and become machines. And all of the courage that it took for you again and again to fill into your own body and say, no, and I'm going to go this way now. Your courage to me is profoundly astonishing and inspires me daily to keep going in my own steps toward unknowing. So I want to say you, thank uh, you for that. Thank you for the ways in which you <laughs> animate my courage to move into those difficult spaces with the belief that the gills will come. <laughs> that, yeah. you know, to quote Richard Rohr, that we can breathe underwater even yeah. when things get difficult or take us into um, a challenging, unexpected place. And so thank you. And on the tail end of that, I want to ask you, like, what is inspiring you these days to, to keep going into the unknown? Ooh, I love you a lot. Love you. Thank you for saying what you said, by the way. <laughs> My eyes are filled with happy water. Um, what inspires me? Playing on my tummy with my daughter. Um, swinging in the hammock with my son. Reading Harry Potter to him at night. Um, gardening and getting my hands dirty and being brave enough to love again over and over, even when it hurts. Um, To forgive. uh, To watch the changing of the seasons, which reminds me that nothing, no feeling, what is that? No feeling is final. Who said that? Uh, Yeah, 
No feeling is final. I think I'm... I'm inspired by the women that are soft and have wrinkles and, like... I'm inspired by like Helen Mirren and like Dame Judi Dench, you know, like I'm, (laughs) you know, it's like, I'm inspired by Kate Winslet, you know, like I'm inspired by, I'm inspired by people who've overcome things and still are kind. And, you know, there's, I'm not listening to a ton of music these days um, unless it's like, ambient or you know my kids different playlists (laughs) but um but poetry inspires me and you know fresh cut flowers inspire me and talking with you inspires me and um you know not being afraid of things going differently than I thought that inspires me too it's like I love the idea of you saying the map dots it's like Hey, like I can hold the part of me that can freak out, you know, and I can hold that part of me and say, hey, like it's a map dot. You're going to look back a year from now and you're going to go, wow. (laughs) So it got bigger. It got bigger. It got wider. It got more colorful. It got gooder, like your dad used to say. It got gooder, as my dad used to say. My very scholarly, well-spoken, erudite father (laughs) would, would always say, you know, when it's, when it's at its bleakest, just wait, it gets gooder. And he was speaking to a trust. He was speaking to the belief that things can open up and flower in ways we can't imagine. And I have to, I have to believe that. Otherwise I quit. (laughs) Yeah. And there's, you know, there's no stopping. There's no stopping it. This adventure of becoming, you know, and what I am hearing and how you're describing this place that you're, you're in and what inspires you. I see this woman in the wilderness, you know, not a little girl anymore, but this woman in the wild, in the forest. And, this sense of connection that you're drawing from all these different sources, from being a mother to the relationality of friendships, to your connection to nature and beauty and flowers, to your sense of being fed by, you know, women who are elders who have gone before Mm -hmm. and who are breaking every normative, oppressive view of what a woman should be by their courage and badassery. Um, And, And your sense of being fed by the wild, by the kind of community of belonging in this relational universe. Um, And I usually like to end each episode by asking one of two questions. It's either, where are you being called into unknowing or what's calling up ahead? What edge are you living into right now? Or it's, what advice would you give? And what I feel in what you just said is so profoundly a gift of wisdom for us all to to trust that it gets gooder, to move with courage to new spaces because each, each, each difficult spot is a dot on the map and we can trust that we will keep going. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I have advice. I feel too young to give it and uh, I feel too old to believe my own at times. So <laughs> I, I think, what was the first thing you said? Either advice or 
where are you being invited into further unknowing? Like, where's the horizon? Into, <laughs> where am I not being invited into further <laughs> unknowing? Brie, Brie, where am I not being called into further unknowing? I, um, I'm being called into a greater patience on timing. Mm. This is what I feel. And of course, like, as a musician, there's this idea of, like, I want to keep creating more and more and more. And, you know, I think an artist's, you know, part of an artist's deep-seated nightmare is obscurity. <laughs> um, so, but I think to myself, like, I'm, there's room. Like, there's room here. And I feel like I'm being called to, like, nestle down in to, I don't know what my life's going to look like. I have no idea. And I thought really recently I had a, a picture of what that was going to look like and that shifted. And, um, you know, and, and, and I've been so surprised by things like while I'm writing songs for other people and focusing on being a really present mom and a present friend and like, uh, embracing that time when it's just me, um, it's also like new things have come up like, like oh, the radio show, like the radio show, on, you know, Southern craft on Apple music. And like, I would never have thought that I would do that, but I love it. Like we, you and I finally get to talk to people and like, and actually get to share, um, in, in like kind of setting a table for someone to kind of feast and, and bring themselves to I just love it. I love, and I love that we're both getting to do that right now. And, um, so I just have, I'm being invited to not resist not knowing what's happening. I'm, I'm being invited to just be like, just, my mom would say, just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. Like, okay, after I'm done talking to you, I'm going to blow out the candles and I'm going to go get margaritas with one of my friends, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the next thing. And it just takes it down from the esoteric and it takes it down from the fear and it takes it down from our imaginary deadlines that we create for what our lives are supposed to be like when and how and where. So I think I'm being invited to, to just be really open palmed about what my future relationships are going to look like, uh, the, the shape of my family, um, creativity and, um, you know, and as, as things have opened up more from COVID too, it's like, I think, uh, place, you know, options of, of different place is something I consider to, um, to, to drop down into. I have not been to the Oregonian woods like you did recently. I'm very <laughs> jealous of that. I'm like, oh, I want, I want to go there, but um, I want you to go to there. And howl at the moon yeah. <laughs> with other women. That was quite a powerful experience. Um, yeah, I take it. That approach to just taking the next step and David White has that poem where he's like mm -hmm. take just take the next step the one that's hardest to take the one that's right in front of you it does everything you said it brings it down out of the esoteric and it just brings us back into our bodies and into this bodiliness of being and becoming um, that I think when we move in that kind of compassionate way as you've so beautifully articulated there's forgiveness for all the ways in which we maybe abandoned ourselves before. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness mm -hmm. for reality. These are Richard, 
Richard Rohr's words where he says, we must forgive reality for being so harsh at times. <laughs> yeah, so compassionate, right? So it's like forgiving reality for the difficult bumps and sharp edges that cut us along the way. And then that kind of homecoming, that homecoming back into our bodies and into ourselves is to say, I don't know. I don't know what's next, but I trust this much and I know I can take this next step. Yeah, you're doing it. I'm doing it. So Joy, for all the ways in which you embody that kind of courageous trust and soft strength and incredible strong vulnerability, I'm so grateful for your voice in this world and I'm especially thankful for your voice in my life. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> I love you. I feel the same way about you. And I'm glad we got to finally so glad we got to do this. It's so good. We're doing it. And that's so We're true. If people it. even knew that like how we <laughs> our conversations. It's it's nice that we get to record one, is all I have to say. <laughs> They're hours well spent. I think I really hope we get to grow old and flabby and like hold up each other's skin and drink rose Done. together. I thought this this is something I aspire to. Only <laughs> if we can also wear two different colors socks and like really weird, yes. musty smelling kimonos from the sixties and fur collars. Yeah. You know, I have an okay. image. Oh, oh, yes, you do have an. Image. It's also what I currently wear, so it's kind of like why. <laughs> just gonna be like why is that different from anything you're wearing now (laughs) i love you so much (laughs) i love you too thanks for the time i'm glad we got to chat okay so we're learning how to trust the sound of our own voice as we stride into the wild we're learning how to tune out all the other voices that are crying out mend my life win more grammys and trust the sound of our own heartbeat instead. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking with me from this conversation. I literally felt my heart squeeze when I heard Joy say, the price of that success that she thought was what she wanted all along, the price was so expensive. And it just, it landed, I think, because there's this sense in which most of us have been conditioned to believe that success looks like the money, the job, the accolades. It's about attaining and having and possessing. When in reality, our success is actually defined by freedom, our own and each other's. When we can be free to be our full selves and create in whatever way your creativity expresses itself, but to feel that sense of wild abandoned permission to be creative, that, that is true success. Because that kind of success doesn't require us to abandon ourselves or our bodies or our well-being. <laughs> so I'm gonna take that with me. Another piece of True North wisdom that I am taking with me The way that Joy described the trust fall of unknowing as drowning, knowing that eventually at some point those gills are gonna, (laughs) they're gonna show up. (laughs) I really loved that imagery, but I also loved the invitation from Joy's dad in the way that he used to say, it gets gooder. (laughs) You can trust it, it gets gooder. You know, I do think so many of us have this sense of FOMO, this panic that somehow we're not doing the things that we thought we would be doing at this time or we thought we would be further along or I, you know, here I am, I'm 38 and I'm just now releasing an album. This is me speaking as Brie. Like, I'm just now releasing an album that I feel like is like, is me. It's like, I've, I'm just now figuring this out, you know? And 
We all do this to some degree. We all choose a random mile marker on somebody else's map to compare ourselves to, and then to see ourselves and our lives as lacking in the distance between ourselves and somebody else's reality. And the invitation that I felt from Joy was this falling through that obsessive, comparative worldview into this place of abundance that can trust that it gets gooder, that that everything that we've lived through is part of what makes us who we are and to trust the timing of that and to no longer feel that we're on this continuum where we have to have our shit together by age 40. <laughs> Once again, speaking to myself, but just, just allow the humanity to permeate and to give ourselves permission to breathe and be and pivot and change and grow. Last piece of True North wisdom I'm taking with me from this conversation was the incredible insight that Joy had about forgiveness, <laughs> forgiving reality for the bumps, for the edges, for the difficulties, is not something we are doing for the other person, persons, or situations. It's actually an inner posture that allows us to be brave. It allows us to keep going. It allows us to get up the next day and do it again. And as she said, but do it differently. Forgiveness is what lets us continue to have <laughs> a strong back and a vulnerable heart that fleshy, soft willingness to keep going and keep creating and keep loving. Okay, y'all, <laughs> that's it for today's conversation. I don't know, I had to do it, you know? I was talking to my friend in Nashville. If these conversations have been meaningful to you, if you wanna ensure that Joy Williams and I reach our goal of becoming eccentric old ladies wearing kimonos and fur collars, or at the very least for there to be a season two of Unknowing, then I'm going to invite you to become a patron and support this show. We can't do it without you. This podcast is made possible entirely because of patrons like you. So as uncomfortable as it makes me to have to do the NPR fun drive thing, I'm doing it. I'm doing it because, because we actually need your support. If you want to see season two come around, if you want these conversations to keep happening, you can also give a one-time tax-deductible donation. To find out more about Patreon and donations, visit unknowing.org. And finally, as is tradition, I'd like to close the show by quoting Rilke and saying, be patient, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying right along with you. <laughs>